0: One of the greatest obstacles to crafting health and wellness is identifying and controlling inflammation. It's at the core of all complex and chronic diseases, and it's the driving mechanism that underlies the most common symptoms that people like you struggle to overcome. Join us as we explore cutting-edge science and research to give you the information and tools you need to create the quality of life you want and deserve. And now, here is the host of Inflammation Nation, Dr. Stephen Nosworthy. So I'm going to start this episode uh, by filling in some details that I, neg- I realized I neglected to include when we talked in our last episode about the role of insulin and blood sugar control and uh, potentially flip-flopping male and female hormone profiles. Um, and, and that missing piece is just, you know, like how do you fix blood sugar? Um, and that's obviously a much larger conversation. We do have some previous episodes where we talked a little bit more detail in that, but I, I will tell you, That if we look at the problem from uh, the general perspective of blood sugar falls into two large categories, low blood sugar conditions and high blood sugar conditions. And of course, if we understand that either one of those profiles or tendencies can increase your insulin either periodically or consistently, um, then the question again becomes, well, how do we control insulin, insulin and how do we control and stabilize blood sugar? And the question is, it depends on what kind of issue you have. Um, so I'm just going to give you a couple of general rules and I'm, I'm going to refer you back to some of the prior episodes and also let you know that at some point in the future, we'll be doing um, a focus series on each of these blood sugar patterns and go into these things in a little bit more detail. But as a general rule, the primary thing that people need to do when they have a blood sugar and insulin issue is look at diet and lifestyle. Now, supplements can help, certainly, um, but typically the supplements, at least the way I look at things... Uh, supplements take a uh, a third seat or a back seat, if you will, to diet and lifestyle changes. So we have to look at how many calories somebody's eating, how many carbohydrates they're eating, what their protein intake is, what their fat intake is. The uh, let's say the rhythm and the timing of their eating schedule. Are they eating three squares meals a day? Are they not really eating meals? Uh, are they just kind of grazing throughout the day? periodically. Um, are they fasting? Do they do intermittent fasting? And how long of a fasting window and an eating window do they have? Do they do two meals a day or OMAD, which is one meal a day? All of these have to be assessed before you can actually say, okay, here's how we're going to control your blood sugar. But if, if the goal is to control insulin, and that's really ultimately the mechanism that causes these hormone profiles to flip-flop and change, um, we have to look at, again, from these two main categories, Uh, If it's a low blood sugar person whose insulin is rising high because when their blood sugar crashes, they eat all kinds of crap and sugar laden garbage and their blood sugar and insulin go sky high, then we have to stop that. And so quite often with reactive hypoglycemia, the primary strategy is to make sure that people are eating enough calories throughout the day, that they're eating with enough frequency that their blood sugar doesn't crash and then cause that hyperfeeding and high insulin response. And just to kind of put those implements or elements in place and implement that strategy over a period of time to allow the body to adjust and adapt. Because one of the things that happens with these low blood sugar patterns is it's a, it's a constant activation of stress chemistry. And we're going to be talking about the adrenals and stress chemistry today. So that's kind of strategy number one for, for low blood sugar. It's looking at your eating style, your dietary habits, um, and so on. If we go to the opposite end of the extreme with high blood sugar and constant insulin elevation, the main key there is still it's diet and lifestyle. Exercise becomes important. Um, but uh, the main the main approach in controlling insulin with someone who has high blood sugar and insulin resistance is to control their carbohydrate intake and to leverage the power of protein in their diet to inhibit insulin and increase the production of something called glucagon and this is where it's something like uh, calorie restriction or some aspect, some style of intermittent fasting, because you can do it any number of different ways, um, becomes pretty important for the hyper or high blood sugar people with high insulin. Um, And, you know, controlling your carbohydrate intake, that number is going to be different for different people. Um, There's, you know, I can't tell you that, hey, everyone does better if they're carbs are below 120 grams per day. Some people need to go much lower than that, uh, even all the way into ketogenic uh, states where their body is making ketones and the burning fat for fuel. So there certainly is no one size fits all. But my point in, in starting out this episode by patching a hole that I left in the last one, is to get out this idea, this general concept and principle that you can you know, do some kind of a self-evaluation and say, first of all, which camp do I tend to fall in? Am I in the low blood sugar side? Am I in the high blood sugar side? And then give you some generalities that you can start considering. Now, you might need help sorting those things out, either you know, working with someone who does blood work or working with someone, whether that's me or any other qualified expert out there, to look at your individual case and then come up with practical solutions that are uh, personalized and that are unique and specific to you. All right, so we'll leave that there, and we'll go on now to the second pillar of hormone balance and control. The first one is insulin and blood sugar, and the second one is is quite intimately tied to that, and that is stress chemistry, or your adrenal status. Um, and I'm going to refer you again. We we actually spent quite a long time talking about cortisol as a hormone. I think we had at least four different episodes somewhere around there where we kind of teased out a lot of the details of, um, stress chemistry and, and hormones. And so I don't want to go back and rehash all those. It's really no point to do that. If you missed those, just look back through the menu, uh, whichever podcast outlet you're using, um, and just go back and look at the cortisol episodes and listen to those. What I want to do is just again, talk in generalities and, and bring out a couple of specific aspects of cortisol and adrenal dysfunction, and how they how it relates specifically to changing hormone profiles both in men and women and I'm going to start by saying that you cannot separate stress and inflammation; they're not the same, but they are inseparable they are intimately interconnected and interdependent and in fact, one of the ways that stress reactions has an impact on human chemistry is by increasing the production of inflammatory type chemicals. So in one sense, we could say stress equals inflammation, but not because they're the same thing, but just because one, one happens, the other happens. Uh, We can also flip that around and say when somebody is inflamed, it is a biological stressor to their system and has the potential to increase stress hormones, cortisol, um, or over time, dysregulate the control system up in the brain in specifically in the hippocampus and allow the system become to become disinhibited cortisol levels can rise and over a period of time that system can fail to control the circadian rhythm and so you can get into all kinds of different adrenal dysfunction patterns by being chronically and constantly inflamed particularly if you have uh, let's call it a bad brain let's say if you have a bad brain at the same time because again the adrenal system is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis it's not just about the gland it's about the entire system and how the different pieces and parts work together in a harmonious and, and an integrated way i'll also point out that uh, as i've said before i'm i'm really not fond of terms like adrenal fatigue or adrenal exhaustion uh, they're not physiologically correct concepts and and they tend to make everything about the adrenal gland uh, which quite often leads into let's call them outdated and archaic treatment approaches of taking, you know, adrenal extracts or B vitamins and vitamin C, because that's how we make adrenals or make cortisol. Uh, And those things are all well and good for minor situations. But I'll just speak for myself. Um, Pretty much every client that I've worked with for the last 15 years uh, is not an acute temporary problem. You know, we're dealing with people who have years, if not decades of poor health and dysfunction. Obviously, that's a a scale and a spectrum. So when we look at stress chemistry or adrenal balance, one of the main things that we need to talk about and really remind you of, because I did talk about this in the cortisol segment, is to talk about, let's call it the hormone cascade. So we've been talking about reproductive hormones, and it's of note to remind you that all of your steroid-based hormones, which your estrogens, progesterone, and testosterone are, as well as hormones like cortisol aldosterone, or DHEA. These are all based off cholesterol as their base molecule. And so cholesterol balance plays a role in this. And and yes, you can get into trouble with hormone balance by having cholesterol levels that are too low. And that is somewhat counter to, let's say, conventional wisdom, although I put the word wisdom in quotation marks that says, hey, the lower we can get your cholesterol, the better for your heart and your brain. That's a whole different argument. and And I wholeheartedly disagree with that statement, as I believe does the the medical literature on that. Um, But nevertheless, we need a certain amount of cholesterol to be able to make all of these different hormones. And one of the things that happens when we have either low cholesterol or we have a challenge in the system where the body starts to prioritize maintaining cortisol balance uh, it can do that at the expense of other hormones like estrogen or progesterone or testosterone. We'll come back to that. Well, we talked about this in the cholesterol. I'm sorry, the cortisol segment, and and that is talking about what what is called the pregnenolone steel. But let, let me go back to the big picture again. Is that when I started out by saying that stress chemistry and inflammation go hand in hand, they are inseparable and interlinked. And so one of the things, one of the ways that stress chemistry can alter hormone balance and control is by both the cortisol levels, if they're elevated, as well as the inflammatory problem that comes along with having stress type reactions, has the potential to dysregulate the brain part of your hormonal system. So the adrenal system is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. The hormonal system is the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal system. So HPA, HBG, we also have HPT, which is your thyroid, but it all starts up in the brain. And so the way this generally works is that the uh, hypothalamus has what we call sensing neurons. Um, and in fact, the, the hypothalamus and the pituitary are kind of divided into different segments. And one segment controls the adrenals, one controls the thyroid, and the other one controls the gonadal system, at least as it, as it relates to these hormonal systems. And so what ends up happening is these sensing neurons up in the hypothalamus are constantly sampling the amount of hormones that you have in your bloodstream because blood flow goes through the hypothalamus and the neurons there can kind of reach out and pick up uh, a a sample of blood and say, how much estrogen is in in the sample? And so your brain knows at all times, in general, how much hormone you have floating around in your bloodstream. Now, remember, these are protein-bound hormones that are not biologically active. And so the hypothalamus can take these up and examine them without affecting its own function. And based on its assessment of whether hormone levels are too high or too low, it will send a signal through the pituitary gland, ultimately down to your reproductive organs to make more or less hormones. And so the system is constantly fine-tuning itself by increasing or decreasing production over both long as well as short time cycles so that you maintain hormone sufficiency. Now, that's a different question than whether or not we have enough free fraction or biologically active hormones at the cellular level. It's a different part of the conversation. We've talked about that again in previous episodes. And so with stress chemistry and inflammation, what happens is the brain component, let's call it the central command of how your reproductive system is producing things, um, that can get dysregulated. And usually what ends up happening is we see an inhibition of both hypothalamic as well as pituitary gland output. So gonadotropin releasing hormone from the hypothalamus and either luteinizing hormone or follicle stimulating hormone from uh, the pituitary. And that's going to affect men and and women in different predictable ways. But basically stress and inflammation tends to shut down how the brain signals out into the reproductive system, which means you're going to make less or fewer hormones And so if somebody does a blood sample or does a saliva sample and sees that your hormones are low and just immediately concludes that you need hormone support, and all they do is put you on hormone uh, replacement therapy, and they don't investigate whether or not there's inhibition of these brain-based structures, what we would call a secondary hypogonadism, and if they don't chase down the source and correct as possible the source of the stress chemistry and the inflammation, then you're just going to continue on with problems because simply replacing hormones that are deficient doesn't fix the issue unless the problem is a defunct set of ovaries or a defunct, defunct set of testicles. Now, that also isn't always entirely true, but the easiest example might be a woman who goes through, say, she ends up having a hysterectomy and, and also has her ovaries removed at maybe an age that's earlier than when she would normally go through menopause for whatever reason that might be. I mean, clearly there was a problem that was leading to the hysterectomy in the surgery. And so you could argue, well, you know, giving hormones still doesn't address the root cause because whatever caused that is perhaps still there. But nevertheless, I think you understand my point is that sometimes we look at labs and it gives us some information about how the system works, but it begs other questions like, okay, where's all this coming from? And so understanding that stress chemistry and inflammation go hand in hand and they can change how the brain signals to the reproductive organs helps us understand, you know, how we might end up with, for example, a woman with, um, perimenopausal symptoms or, Uh, And if we throw on top of that, for example, some kind of insulin elevations that flips the hormones and increases the production of androgens, then now we have two problems that are interlinked with each other. And we have to fix those to get back to any semblance of normal, if not optimal function. And so understanding the hormone cascade and how all steroid-based hormones are made out of uh, cholesterol and how the impact of stress chemistry and inflammation affects the brain signaling down to the reproductive system is important. Now, let's talk about this thing called the pregnenolone steel. Again, I mentioned this back when I did um, the cortisol segment, and, and that's, again, several different episodes long. So you can go back and take a look at that. I'm just going to talk about the highlights here and, and make sure that you're understanding kind of the big picture concepts that are associated with that part of how everything fits together, and the pregnanolone steel goes like this: when your body is presented with some kind of uh, chronic stress challenge, and this is this doesn't tend to happen with um, short-term stressors, right? Stressors that come and go. This is where we have chronic, ongoing stress or maladapted stress responses, and what ends up happening is is in the innate intelligence of the body, it says, "Hey, I'm under chronic stress, so I need to make sure at the very least." that I continue to make enough cortisol to handle this. Now that's ultimately a losing game because you can outstrip your your ability to produce cortisol and that starts to dysregulate over time. And so what was a sufficient response at one point, maybe a deficient response six months down the road. But nevertheless, in its prioritization strategy, because all these hormones come from the same source material, if I need a way to make more cortisol so that I can continue to respond to stress, I have to get the raw material for that somewhere, and by doing that, I can end up taking away the raw material to make things like estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. And so the pregnenolone steel basically says that as we go from cholesterol as the base molecule to pregnenolone as the the mother of all hormones from which all of your steroid-based hormones are made if we divert your pregnenolone pool, which you have a limited capacity to make, if we divert that into the cortisol production pathway, then again, we have the potential to cause deficiencies in other areas. And so it's kind of a physiological case of uh, robbing Peter to pay Paul, if you will. And so what ends up happening again is somebody comes along and measures hormones either in blood or saliva, and they see that hormones are low, but they don't check cortisol levels. They don't check DHEA levels. They don't check pregnenolone levels. They don't cross correlate that with their cholesterol. And they just end up replacing hormones without actually understanding what the problem was to begin with. And that that is going to play out slightly in different case contexts, like whether or not you're dealing with a man versus a woman, or if you're dealing with a woman who is uh, in her reproductive years and, and has, or should have her cycle, or a woman who's in the perimenopausal uh, segment of her life, or or she is uh, postmenopausal, or perhaps she's had a hysterectomy um, uh, at any given age. And so, you know, going back and just kind of reviewing, it's very important. And, and I've, I've tried to give you these pillars in somewhat of a ranked order, and that's difficult to do because everyone's different. Not everyone has an insulin issue. Not everyone has a blood sugar problem. Not everyone has an adrenal issue. You know, maybe your problem, if you have a hormone imbalance, is not these first two pillars of insulin and blood sugar, as well as stress chemistry and inflammation. Maybe your problem's in your gut. And we'll talk about that in the next episode. Or maybe your problem is detox, or maybe it's a combination of those. Or maybe you have a little bit of every pillar. And this is why having a model and a paradigm to work from is so much better than just simply grabbing at straws or throwing a bunch of things at the wall and seeing what sticks. It's a very precise and analytical systems-based way to understand what's going on with your hormones, try to answer the question as to why this is happening, which ultimately leads you to ways that you can change the underlying mechanisms. And that is the ultimate goal of all functional medicine modalities is to get as close to root cause or an understanding of root cause as possible and address the problem there. And when we do that clinically, uh, we can take complex case scenarios and simplify them down to a short list of things to do instead of trying to do everything. Um, And that obviously can be very inefficient, very effective, and also very expensive. So that is the second pillar of hormone balance and control. First one was insulin, blood sugar, second one, stress chemistry, which also links to inflammation, which is itself its own conversation. Um, But I'll see you next episode on the Inflammation Nation. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you so much for listening to the Inflammation Nation. If you found this episode valuable, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. Be the first to know when a new episode drops so that you can stay on top of your game. It also helps others like you find the answers they need. And why not head over to my main website, drnosworthy.com. That's drnosworthy.com to explore my personalized functional medicine coaching programs, submit a question to the podcast, maybe take a quiz, or even reach out to me using the contact form that you can find there. We'll see you next time.